Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za And that's pretty much the outline of the book of Acts. We saw the gospel going to Jerusalem. We saw the gospel going to Judea. We saw it arrive in Samaria in chapter 8. And since chapter 10, up until the end of the book of Acts, we are seeing the gospel are going into the ends of the earth. And so the last, time, the last thing we saw, we saw the Apostle Paul preach at the Areopagus in Athens um, in his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 17, and we looked at that um, the last time we were in the book of Acts, I believe in November last year. And so now we are, we are turning to Acts 18, where the Apostle has been waiting, remember in, in, in Acts 17 he was waiting for Timothy and Silas, who he had left in Berea. They were going to meet him in Athens, but actually now they're going to meet him elsewhere. And he now leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. So that's where we pick the story up. So I'll read uh, from uh, chapter 18 and verse 1. After these things, that is after the preaching, he departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had arrived recently from Italy, along with Priscilla, his wife, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he went to them. And because he was practicing the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he argued in the synagogue every Sabbath, attempting to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now, when both Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began to be occupied with the message, solemnly testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they resisted and reviled him, he shook his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am guiltless. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And leaving there, he entered into the house of someone named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard about it, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, by a vision in the night, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, because I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, because many people are mine in this city." So he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews rose up with one purpose against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it was some crime or wicked villainy, O Jews, 
I would have justified, I would have been justified in accepting your complaint. But if it is, but if it is questions concerning a word and names under your own law, see to it yourselves. I do not wish to be a judge of these things. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. So they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And none of these things was a concern to Gallio. So Paul, after remaining many days longer, said farewell to the brothers and sailed away to Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Tancria because he had taken a vow. So they arrived at Ephesus, and those he left behind there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and discussed with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not give his consent, but saying farewell and telling them, I'll return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he arrived at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed, traveling through one place after another in the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, arrived in Ephesus, an eloquent man who was well-versed in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being enthusiastic in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things about Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he assisted greatly those who had believed through grace. For he was vigorously refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. This passage, as you can see, is action-packed has a lot of things happening here, and so we're going to spend uh, a few weeks in it. Uh, today, I want us to focus on one element of it, and then in the next weeks, we'll focus on the other parts of this particular passage. Now, here's a question I have for you this morning. What do you personally do with good examples? What do you do with good examples? The scripture loves to bring to our attention good examples who by the force of their lives cause us to study them and thereby challenge us to imitate them. In the text in front of us today, as the mission continues, Luke introduces to us a number of new characters, particularly three new characters. One character is Apollos. The other character, which is, seems to be the main character that is being introduced to us here, is Priscilla and Aquila, the married couple. And in this passage, Luke introduces us to these two, these powerhouse people in the life of the early church. Apollos was a powerhouse figure, and we'll learn about him more. And Priscilla and Aquila were a powerhouse couple in the life of the church. 
In the New Testament, there is no couple that is more prominent in the work of furthering the gospel than Priscilla and Aquila. And this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, features almost as prominently as Paul does in this chapter. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to consider the first example that Luke is bringing to us. And I want us, for those who are married in the church, to pay attention as we look at a godly Christian marriage that the Lord saw fit to use for the advance of his kingdom. I want us to study this couple and study how they lived so as to challenge us, those of us who are married, those of us who want to be married, and those of us who have the benefit of perhaps encouraging others who are married, to see what it is that is the life of a married Christian couple that is honoring to the Lord and beneficial to his church. So Paul leaves Athens in verse 1, and he travels to Corinth. And there, presumably, is where he will continue to wait for Silas and Timothy, whom he had left in Berea. And when he arrives in Corinth, he meets this, he meets and stays and works with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. This couple is mentioned through three times throughout this chapter here. They're mentioned here at the beginning of the chapter. They're also mentioned in verse 18. And then they close out the chapter as well in their coming alongside Apollos to tutor him in the gospel of grace. But they're not just mentioned here. They're mentioned throughout the New Testament. They're mentioned in Paul's letter to the Romans, in his letter to the Corinthians, and in his deathbed letter to Timothy, which we call 2 Timothy. This couple, Priscilla and Aquila, are tent makers with Paul here in verse 4, and they travel with him on a missionary journey in verse 18. They disciple a young preacher in verse 26. They are called co-workers in the gospel in Romans 16, and they host multiple times a church in their house, as we are told in 1 Corinthians 16. So first, let us get to know this couple. Who are they? Who is Priscilla and Aquila? Well, Paul Luke tells us there at the beginning that Aquila was a native of Pontus. And Pontus was a Roman province on, on the Black Sea along the northeast coast of what we would call today modern Turkey. However, they lived, even though that's where he was from, he is from Pontus, He's a Jew who is native from Pontus. They lived and worked prior to this in the city of Rome. So their, their home really is Rome, the eternal city itself. That's, where they, that's what they call home. That's where, that's where their trade was. That's where they lived their lives. This couple had a, a leather-making or a tent-making business. And they are currently in Corinth. They have left Rome and they've come to Corinth because they've been kicked out of Rome. They're kicked out of Rome because at that time, the emperor at the time, Claudius, wanted all Jews out of Rome. This was around AD 49, and this is well attested even in antiquity, that Claudius, uh, when, the, when there were a lot of public riots in the city of Rome done by the Jews, the Jewish people, uh, Claudius just decided to kick them all out. He said, you're all causing a lot of problems here. I want you all out of my city. 
And so all Jews, whether they were Christian Jews or uh, Jews who were following Judaism, all of them without discrimination were kicked out of the city of Rome. So now they've traveled there and they've, they've come to Corinth to pick up the pieces of their lives, as it were. But what is also evident in the text is that they are already Christians. Luke does not tell us that uh, Paul arrives to them and then he converts them by his preaching. He usually tells us that. If you've been following in Acts, we're always told when we meet new characters and Paul preaches the gospel to them and then they are saved, we are told about that story. Here we're not told anything about that. We're just told that he went, he was with them, and he worked with them, which means that they were already believers. And in fact, there's enough reason to believe that Paul knew about them, that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he knew that I need to go find Priscilla and Aquila. We're not sure when they became believers. It's possible that they became believers in Acts chapter 2, because remember when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, after that moment of uh, the tongues coming down and the Jews thinking that everybody is drunk and then he's explaining and saying no people are not drunk the spirit has come upon them and they're now speaking in languages that you can all understand among the people that are listed in Acts chapter 2 are Jews who are from Pontus so it's possible that they, they had heard the gospel then, but there are also Jews from Rome there as well. So it's possible that Priscilla and Aquila have been believers right from that time. But there's been other believers who've been scattered throughout. You remember when the persecution happened in, um, in Jerusalem and the, the believers were scattered abroad. It's possible some of them were scattered to Rome. And so it's possible that some of them interacted with Priscilla and Aquila and they received the gospel then. And trying to get to know this couple more, we're not told anything regarding children. We, in fact, there's a, there's a, it's either they are quite already uh, advanced in years such that their children would be uh, standing on their own two feet, but what's most likely is that, is that it's possible that they actually don't have children. Maybe they've never been able to have children, or, or as was normal at the time that you'd have kids and then uh, the Lord takes them for, through some... Uh, disease at the time. So we're, we're unsure regarding any children. We're also unsure regarding their age. Uh, this is happening around AD 51, and we know that they're still alive and well in AD 67 when Paul is writing his letter. So it, they are not so old that about 15 years later, almost, almost 20 years later, they are no longer around. So we, we're not sure how old they are. But as much as we do not know a lot about this couple, what we do know about them is crucial. And what we do know about them is exemplary and is worth our time together this morning to study. The first thing I want to bring to your attention about them is what we find in verse 3. This is Paul now coming to them to Priscilla and Aquila, living with them in their house. And then it says this in verse 3, And because he was practicing the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they, that is Priscilla and Aquila, they were tent makers by trade. This is the first thing we're learning about them, is that they were hard workers. If you know anything about the tent-making trade in the first century, you'll understand that it is a heavy trade. 
It begins with the, work, the working of the leather in order to make the tents. It is a lot of strong work that is required. Some of it, a lot of very, very specific work with the fingers, with the hands. But a lot of it is also a lot of muscular work. It's heavy work to do, and especially to carry around those tents to the places that you would sell them. They were hard workers. Uh, they were not slackers. It is clear, and you'll see as we go on, go on later, that they're not just hard workers as it relates to uh, the material. They're also hard workers as it relates to the spiritual. But I want to bring your attention to their hard work in the material. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul mentions how hard he labored to provide for himself while he was among the Corinthians. In fact, let's turn there for a second. This is when Paul, Paul is talking, really testifying about this time, about how hard it was, how, how much labor he put in to care, just for, to care for himself and those who are with him in, um, while he was in verse, uh, in verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working, uh, from working in order for a living? I think I've, I've misplaced the text I had in mind here. I am not seeing it. The point is, he worked hard. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've terribly misplaced the passage I'm thinking about. I had it here. He worked hard. Just, I, I, you, I can give you the reference later. He worked hard. He worked hard. Um, he worked hard, and in his working hard, he worked with, the tent with, he worked with Priscilla and Aquila. There is an old proverb, God gives the birds their foods their food, but he doesn't throw it into their nests. God gives birds their food, but he doesn't throw it into their nests. Here, here is Paul involved in the work of the ministry, and he has to work hard to provide for himself. I want you to think about this, that when Paul is talking about himself and his hard work, he's really including Priscilla and Quilla because those are the people that we know that he worked with. He worked with them night and day, he says. I will find this passage. Because he even says that he worked night and day. Uh, oh. he, he worked night and day to provide for himself and those uh, who were with him. And so if Paul worked that way and Priscilla and Aquila, we have no reason to believe that they didn't work that way, then we need to think about the hard work and the work that a couple like Priscilla and Aquila involved themselves in. It has been said that the bedrock of society is the family, and so it is. And we could also say that the bedrock of the New Testament church is also families in their different forms. The Christian marriage in particular has much to teach us regarding the gospel. The Christian marriage is the place by which we see the drama of Christ and the church allegorized. But we must also not expect and exhort in Christian marriage, what we also must expect and exhort in a Christian marriage 
is hard work. Hard work. Labor with our hands. The union of the man and the woman in Christ is a union of two people involved in the bettering of humanity, in the provision of food, in the healing of wounds. Allow me to say that a lazy couple, that a man and a woman who are married, and they are lazy with regards to work, will find no scripture verses to be their friends. If you're a married couple and you're both lazy, or if you're a married couple and you are, you are, you are egging each other on in your laziness, you will not find any scripture verses to be your friend, to encourage you in your chosen course. Christian marriage is supposed to be a place where the work, not only in the church but in society, is exemplified, where we see a husband working hard and we also see a wife working hard in her duties. Let me begin with wives. For wives, Proverbs 31 gives you no hope of a life of perpetual relaxation if you are to be faithful. You know that, the, you know the, 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 that goal of being the Instagram wife, having a wonderful, easy life and just no work and relax. You're always on this island and that, that island because your husband is very rich. If, if that's the goal for your life, that is not a Christian goal. Proverbs 31, open it with me. I want to show you. Proverbs 31. For godly Christian wives, you must know that while you are here, before the Lord Jesus returns, you have agreed and signed a contract to be a hard worker. Let us look at the godly wife in Proverbs 31. And, and look at the things and look at how much this person carries load. I want you to look at this lady. Look at from, from verse 13. Read with me from verse 13. What does she do? What does this exemplary wife do? She seeks, she seeks wool and flax. And she works with the diligence of her hands. She is like the ships of a merchant. From far off, she brings her food. You know, ships would come from far away and they bring food. So she's like that. She goes far to bring in her food. So you can't really complain about driving to four ways to get a good deal. <laughs> she arises while it is night and gives food to her household and tasks to her servant girls. She arises before everybody else including her slaves. This is actually a nice word to say, servant girls. The word there is slave. Including her slaves, she arises before them to give them food before they start their work, and then she gives them their tasks. You're doing this today. You're doing this today. Look at what she does in verse 16. She considers a field, and she buys it. From the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She girds her waist in strength, and makes her arms strong. Sanctified female bodybuilding. <laughs> she girds her waist in strength. She is prepared. And she makes her arms strong. She works hard. This is, she's working hard and so her arms become stronger. Verse 18. She perceives that her merchandise is good. 
Her lamp does not go out in the night. Her hands she puts onto the distaff, and her palms hold a spindle. Her palm she op- her palm she opens to the poor, and her hand she reaches out to the needy. She's looking out to the needs of others. Listen to this: she does not fear when her house for her house when it sows, for her entire household is clothed in crimson. This is a woman who has prepared her household for the changing of the seasons. She watches the times and she's aware of what needs to be done when it needs to be done. She makes for herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates in his seat among the elders of the land. Her husband is exalted to become an elder in the land and sit at the gates where the issues of the city are discussed because of her linen garments she makes and sells and she supplies sashes for the merchants strength and dignity are her clothing and listen to this she laughs at the future she laughs at the future she's prepared she's prepared for whatever is going to come because she applies herself to work hard primarily here for the benefit of her family Wives, well, her family primarily, but also we saw that it's not just her family that benefits from her, it's also the poor and the needy. So wives at Heritage Baptist, let me exhort exhort you, work hard. Give yourself to working hard. Many of you do work hard, and for that we praise God. But I must warn you against the spirit of the age that speaks as if something shocking is happening to you when you are tired at the end of the day. This is surprising. I'm so exhausted. The world is crashing and falling about me. I have so much to do. That's normal. It's part of life. You You ought to work hard. As a godly Christian wife, you have to exemplify for your children the principle of working hard. Working hard and going to bed tired is not something that is optional. It's not something that is based on your circumstances. We're not told here how rich her husband is. In fact, it sounds like her husband is probably very rich because they've got slaves. She can consider a field and buy it. It seems like this is a well-off family. And even in that case of a well-off family, you see how hard she still works. She doesn't take the excuse that because she has servants, she's going to sleep in and wake up after the birds. But she, she, she has principles of life where she prioritizes hard work. Let me encourage you ladies to work hard. Let me encourage you to put your hands to the plow as wives and exemplify what it is to be a Christian understanding that, before, that work is a creation ordinance. You know, some of us, the way that we talk about work sounds as if we think that work came because of the fall. You know, if Adam and Eve just didn't do that, eat that foolish apple, I'd be relaxing right now in, uh, in the coast. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. When you read in, the, in, in, the, in Revelation, it says that now they serve with clean hands. The work that we're doing will continue into eternity, but just then there'll be no more curse that comes with it. Praise God for that. 
There'll be no more annoyances that comes with it. There'll be no more hardship that comes with working in a sin-cursed world. But work will continue. Hard work will continue. Let me tell you, you will not procrastinate in heaven. You'll be working hard. You will not be lazy in heaven. There will be no distractions in heaven. That WhatsApp message that takes you on that rabbit trail. Next thing you find yourself, you're on Pinterest. How did we get here? <laughs> there will be none of that, but there will be hard work. Jesus says that the servants who serve well will be given cities. Some of you here will be managers of cities and realms. You'll be, you're told that in Christ you'll be judging angels. There'll be a lot of work for us to do in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why you need to think correctly about heaven also. When you think about heaven, you need to think correctly. Heaven is going to be on the renewed earth. You with me? Okay, so heaven's not going to be some, you know, out-of-body experience where we're just floating around on harps. Heaven, according to the Bible, is going to be a... A, a reality where you've been put together after the resurrection, put together with your body. Your body is given new capabilities and you're back here on a renewed earth to work the land and do what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. You with me? So work is a good thing and working hard every day is a good thing. And then take your Sabbath. Then take your Sabbath. Take the day of rest Keep it pure and holy. Set it apart that you rest one day in seven. But after the, the rest of the one day in seven is finished, go back to work. Husbands, you do not escape. You thought, you, you thought we'd left. Yeah, I told my wife. No, no, you did not escape. While we do not have a chapter per se about a husband specifically that we have in, like we have in Proverbs 31, Really, the entirety of the book of Proverbs is written to young men who will be husbands. The entirety of the book of, of Proverbs is, is to train men to be good men in society, to be godly men in society, and to be godly husbands. And the, the biggest tactic, the, 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 the best tactic that the writer of Proverbs, uh, Solomon, uses in, 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 in talking about husbands and work is in how he is in showing how absurd the excuses are of a lazy man. So that's the thing, that's, 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 the, that's, the, that's the device that he uses more often than not. He, he repeatedly throughout the book of Proverbs showing how pathetic the excuses of a lazy man are. Show, to show you, so let me, let me sample a few of you. In Proverbs 22, verse 13, the lazy man says this, there is a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. Right? That's the lazy man. He's, he's very good with coming up with excuses. There's a, there's a real reason why I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, there's a, real, there's a, there's a really solid reason why I'm going to hit the snooze button. And turn over again and again instead of working at the time that I'm supposed to, the time that I know I'm supposed to work. The line, there's a line outside, but there's no line outside. It's, it's Israel. I mean, there's not that many lines. It's a bunch of mountains. Not that many. There are lines, but there's not that many of them. Imagine, this is a similar very much to somebody in Johannesburg saying exactly the same thing. You're going to 
make all these people who've never been to Africa think that what they, what they see in movies is true. You live here in Johannesburg, there's a lion outside. I'm not going to wake up. See how foolish that sounds. It's a foolish thing to make up all these excuses. The lazy man does not plow in the autumn, but when, it, when, when harvest time comes, he seeks and does not find. Proverbs 20 verse 4. In other words, the lazy man leaves things and then when the, the thing that he saw was going to happen because he's left the thing, when that happens now, now he's going around seeking and asking and he has hands like this. I should have plowed in the autumn. autumn. I didn't. So now, weren't there cleaning laws? Let me now come to your field and pick from what you have. That's the lazy man. And it's that man that Paul is talking about when we recently saw this in 2 Thessalonians. That man must not be allowed to eat. Don't feed that man. The man who, when he was supposed to be working, wasn't. And now his life has come to a place that is as, as, as a result of his foolish decisions. Paul says, do not feed him. Paul says, ensure that that man gets up and fix it because you're going to be taking a grown man and you're going to make him a dependent on you. You're going to destroy your own family and your own finances because of somebody who is lazy and sleeps during the autumn when the rest of us are supposed to be plowing. Proverbs 19, verse 24. The lazy man finds hardship in everything. Everything is hard. Look at, look at Proverbs 19, verse 24. You can note it down. He says this, The sluggard buries his hand in the dishand and will not even bring it back to his mouth. In the dish, rather. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is so lazy that he can't even... He can't just... So lazy. Can't even take care of himself. Cook for yourself. You can't even do that. That's how lazy he is. And here's the great tragedy of a lazy man, particularly in the context of a husband. I'm going to ask you to go there. Proverbs 10, verse 26. Proverbs 10 and verse 26. Here's the tragedy of a lazy man. This is the big tragedy. Like vinegar to the teeth, and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Everyone has been conditioned by him to not trust him. No one trusts him anymore. Because whenever they send him, whenever they rely on him for something, what happens? It's unreliable. He always breaks trust. You can't trust his word. And so nobody trusts you anymore because every time we trust you on something, it's like vinegar to our teeth or smoke to our eyes. It's pinching. When we trust you, plans fail. You're not a trustworthy man. That's a, that's a sign of laziness. That's why he calls him there. He is a sluggard. Some men complain that their wives do not respect them. But the reason sometimes that their wives have lost respect for them is because they are lazy. It is possible that your wife has lost respect for you. Now, I'm not saying your wife shouldn't respect you. She has to. She has to see to it. But, but why has she lost respect for you? Is it because you are lazy? 
Is it because that you are a sluggard? You can't be trusted. She can't trust you. She can't trust you to lead the family in work, to lead the family in certain in ca categories. You cut corners in your duties and it shows in the family. You are lazy to lead your family in religion and it shows. And so your wife has lost all respect for you. Can you blame her? Can you blame the subject for losing faith and trust in a leader who has proven repeatedly that they're not to be trusted? Husbands, this will not do. This will not do. We are not to be lazy. We need to prioritize being godly, particularly we need to prioritize and exemplify for our families hard work. And hard work in everything. Hard work in the management of the home. Hard work outside of the home. Hard work in how we deal with people. Do not, by your example, gentlemen, teach your children that service is at your own leisure. Do not, gentlemen, treat, show your children by your example that we serve and we work hard only when it really fits within our agenda. No, gentlemen, the, the example you ought to be exemplifying in your homes is the example of Jesus Christ, whom we're told in Philippians 2, that he considered what was best for his people. And then he came down and served them at great cost to him. A man who complains that he's always tired, a man who complains that there is, that there is never-ending work for him to do, that man is teaching his children by his example to not love work. Of course, there is a way to talk about how the pressures of life at different times, you know, it's a very busy season. So let's, there's a busy season right now, there's situations like this, but just be very careful that your speaking about work is not always complaints. Because you are saying that the thing that God has given you, which is work, is bad. And it isn't. If you are to be godly and righteous, gentlemen, you ought to marry hard work and call it your bosom friend. Now, that's the first thing that we're picking up from them here. They were not just, but they were not just uh, hard workers in the material. There were also hard workers in the spiritual. Jump with me back to our text now in Acts 18. Jump with me to verse 24. And this is when Apollos comes to Ephesus. Now at this point, they've left with Paul to Ephesus. And when they're in Ephesus, this young preacher who's well-versed in the scriptures, he, he is instructed in the way of the Lord, but he is not very accurate because he only knows the baptism of John. And so look at what they do in verse 26, after they heard him. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Have you ever had to correct a preacher? Have you ever had to correct a preacher, particularly about doctrine or about a sermon? Go Landmines, Right? Preachers, I believe, are some of the hardest people to correct, certainly in my young experience, especially young preachers who are starting out and they think that they are God's gift to people. They are not easy people to show the way. It require, it's a spiritual work that requires self-control. 
It requires a clarity of mind. It requires an emotional stability to be able to take someone who's this gifted, take, take, take them aside and tell them, listen, young one, you're, it's wonderful, but uh, you're off. That's correct here. You're, you're, you're off on this, this, on that. Let's, let's come back. It's not easy work, but it, it's hard work, and they did it. They saw, here's one whom the Lord has gifted. We're not going to leave him preaching what's not right, so let's help him. And they took it upon themselves as a married couple to do that work. It's the same with anything. When you, when you see someone else who's young, who's messing up in different ways. Couples in the church, there are many young people here. Are there really no areas that you are observing in them that need to be helped? And if you're observing that there are these areas in them that need to be helped so that they can walk more accurately in accordance with the word of the Lord, then if that is the case, what you need to do is not complain about how these youngsters are. It's not to just be frustrated. Look at these youngsters. They, have, they, they, they don't have it figured out. No. Your task is to do what Priscilla and Aquila did. Take them aside and show them the way. Are you with me? If you're a married couple in the church, you have a duty to take others aside if you're seeing them going astray and show them the right way. Yes, we can all get frustrated when we see things going the wrong way, but the true test of our maturity is not in how loud we are in our frustrations, but how we involve ourselves in going into the mess and trying to fix it. It's very hard to listen for, to, comp, for, to listen to complaints from a person who never picks up and puts their hands to the plow. It's very hard to listen to complaints and criticisms from someone who does not come alongside and help, but just wants to constantly be a sniper of pointing out problems. These guys, Priscilla and Aquila, this wonderful couple, they saw a problem and they said, we're going to do this together. We're going to help this young man. I encourage this example to you. We also find out about this couple that they were consistently sacrificial with regards to the gospel. Uh, they left, verse 18, look at your, your eyes to verse 18. They left a thriving work situation in Corinth and left with Paul as he sails away to Syria and landing in Ephesus. So Paul, after remaining many days longer, said farewell to the brothers and sailed away, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. They had a, a, a business that was doing well, it seems, because they were able to, to care for themselves. They had a business in Corinth, but they left it to participate in the mission and traveling with Paul to Ephesus. Later on, in uh, Romans 16, we are told about a church that was meeting at their home. This is what Paul says in Romans 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, for which not only am I thankful, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that meets in their house. So at this point, at AD, in AD 57, they had left uh, Ephesus and gone back to Rome. 
And this is probably because Claudius died in AD 50. But the peace that they had in Rome, which then when they got there, they, they hosted a church in their home, and they were with that church for a while. But that peace didn't last long because there was the great fire of, uh, of uh, Rome in AD 64 on July 19, which then, which then uh, the, the, the emperor at the time, Nero, blamed on all the Christians. And so this started a time of persecution for all Christians. And so in AD 64, they left, they would have left and gone elsewhere and gone back to, to Ephesus. Primarily, they went back to Ephesus. And that is why in AD 67, Paul writes to, the, Paul writes to Timothy and says, greet for me Priscilla and Aquila. So this couple was in Rome, they, are, they were in Rome, they were persecuted out of Rome. They went to Corinth. They left because of the mission from Corinth to go with Paul to plant a church in Ephesus, to work in Ephesus with Paul. Then when they got to Ephesus, they, some, through some means, they probably saw that things were, were good again in Rome, so they went back to Rome. They hosted a church in Rome, and then persecution broke out again in Rome, and then they went back to Ephesus. This is a church that knows hardship together. They don't just work hard together, and they don't just disciple people together, but they know adversity together. They know what it is to be chased out of their homes and to leave their businesses through adversity. And so for this, with this point, it is worth us pausing here. It's worth thinking about this question. How do you suffer as a married couple? How do you suffer as a married couple? How do you handle hardship? Studies have shown that hardships, for example, such, such as a death of a child, greatly increases the likelihood of divorce in couples. On the one hand, we have the example of Job's wife. Do you remember Job's wife? When Job was going through all those hardships, what did she say to him? Why are you still holding your integrity? Curse God and die. And then Job responded, you speak like a foolish woman. Shall we only receive good from God and not evil? On the other hand, we have the example of Priscilla and Aquila. Years into their ministry, years into being with, with, together after much suffering, but each time they are mentioned, they are working together and they are still thriving in Christ. There is a way to handle hardship that is unbiblical. And there is a way to handle hardship that is godly and good. So to all the Christian couples that are here, let me encourage you to work hard on how the two of you together deal with hardship. Ensure that the way that you are encouraging one another, the way that you are speaking to one another, is a godly way as it relates to hardship. If you allow attitudes and words to linger and stay when hardship comes, what you are doing is you are making it seem as though hardship is something that's never been heard of before. And so it's worth it at that moment to leave aside our Christianity. The biggest test of your hypocrisy, really, is whether or not when the sparks fly, in the moment of weakness, you cry out to the Lord in the way that you tell other people to cry out to the Lord. 
One of the biggest tests of your sincerity and blamelessness is in the moment when the road hits the... What, what's the English saying, Muna? The rubber hits the road. There you go. When the rubber hits the road, are you consistent with the theoretical things that you keep telling other people to do? Saints, I would encourage to you the example of Priscilla and Aquila. The years of trial that they have faced in different seasons at different places has not caused them to rent each other, to, to leave each other, or to leave the faith. Or to leave faithfulness in the faith. They've remained consistent. This is a call to all Christian couples in the building. The example of Priscilla and Aquila leaves us with a challenge. And that challenge is this. There is a life of domestic preoccupation that has its focus not on itself exclusively, but also on the mission of the gospel. It is possible to be married and also be focused on the mission and the advance of the kingdom of heaven. There is a life of gospel initiative that exists as a Christian couple. When you think about your lives as a believing couple, you can think about your financial life, your parenting life, the marriage bed. But you must not forget your vital involvement as a couple in the advance of the gospel. Now this will require hard work. It will require initiative. Among all the things though that make you tired, exhausted, some of that must be that you, what you as a godly couple have set aside to do for the, pur for the purpose of participating in the building of the saints. If the only reason that you are ever tired or exhausted is just work, you're never feeling the burden of what it is to take another person and care for them. And open up your palms to the poor and needy. Your exhaustion is only just about you. You still need to mature. But let me encourage you that there is that that, that, that Christian life, that marital bliss exists. Don't buy into the world what it says. We're just going to get married and fly the world and travel the world. And we're going to get married. And we're going to be this, there, doing all these fancy things and getting these many cars and all this. These are all fine and well things to do to enjoy the creation that God has given us. But let me exhort you, please, add in there, what are we going to do to advance the kingdom of God? How are we, Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so, how are we going to be, what's our ministry that we are known for, that we are participating in, that we are pushing that when years after all of our experiences and everything has gone, years after all of that is gone, that work that lasts into eternity is sizable. What did Jesus say? Lay up treasures for yourself. Where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. Now, how will you achieve this? Real quick as we come to a close. How will you achieve this as a married couple? Number one, let me say this primarily. You must work on your marriage. You must tend to your marriage. Tend to your marriage like it is a garden that must be protected from weeds. If Priscilla and Aquila have decades of faithfulness as the New Testament's power couple, and they, they are not healthy in their internal marriage, 
the Holy Spirit would not have allowed their marriage to be this example. If they were hypocrites, if they were doing this, correcting Apollo, hey, Apollo, do this, and then when Apollo leaves, they're scrabbling and scratching each other on each other's heads all the time, the Holy Spirit would not have made them this example. Especially since they lived with Paul. Since they lived with Paul, a number of times they lived with Paul. Paul must have seen the, their marriage and the godliness of their marriage. They would have drunk from what Paul says. So let me say to you, do not allow your marriage to be full of weeds. Deal with issues. The ministry that you want to have as a, as a godly couple has to come from a healthy marriage. A functioning marriage. You need to look at home first here. Fix things here and then serve from that basis. This is a couple, I have to believe, that this is a couple that asked for forgiveness. This is a couple that did not make a habit of speaking harsh words to each other that they would regret. I have to believe that over time, this couple grew in listening to each other and being slow to speak. And you also must do the same. Understand each other. Understand where your spouse is coming from. By the grace of God, you must learn how to control yourself so that you never act controlled by a moment of heat. Let me say it to you in a different way. The easiest way for Satan to prevent you from being a useful couple in the kingdom is to destroy the life of your marriage. The easiest way for him to make you just, to nullify you, to make you useless in the kingdom, to make, me, to make you unparticipating in the, in the advance of the kingdom is to just destroy your fellowship between the two of you. Make you pile up wrongs. Make you hold grudges against each other. But if you are to deal with that, then you are not, like Paul says, you are not giving him an in. You are not giving him a foothold in your marriage. Other couples here need to hear this, this other thing. Some of you, need, some of you are, are, have a really healthy marriage internally. Things are going well for you internally. You feel like you've got a real good groove of how you're speaking to each other, how you're dealing with issues. But you are using that good groove for the sake of worldliness. Some of you need to hear that you must flee from worldliness. It's possible that some, for some of you, what's stopping you from living like Priscilla and Aquila is being preoccupied with things that will not matter in eternity. And you need to have a reorganization of your priorities. It's possible that you as a married couple, as soon as you got married, you just cared about yourselves. You just cared about your house. You are united, you are dealing with issues, but your unity is more useful to your flesh than it is to God. God has united you, and you are using his principles to keep your marriage healthy, but he is getting nothing out of it. Because you are using the health of your, ma of your marriage on your passions. Saints, do you remember Ananias and Sapphira that we saw in chapter 5? That couple who were united, weren't they united? They were united. They were scheming together for the sake of greed. Saints, this must not be numbered among us. Married couples at Heritage Baptist Church, I charge you in the presence of God and his holy angels, do not waste your marriage. May the marriages at Heritage be filled with the Spirit. 
be energized by the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus, that he who had no sin took on sin for us so that we might become his righteousness in Christ. May our marriages be so fueled by that that we are constantly working hard, suffering together well, and considering how we as a married couple can benefit the saints. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, this example leaves us with such a challenge. Our Father, who is sufficient for all these things? As we, as the married couples at Heritage, seek to follow in the footsteps of Priscilla and Aquila, Lord, won't you please help us? Primarily, Lord, please forgive us for where we have sinned. If we have allowed our hearts to be sucked in to worldliness, please forgive us. If we have allowed ourselves to be so preoccupied by things that will not matter in eternity, please forgive us. If we have made pleasure the pursuit of our marriage instead of service under the banner of Christ, please forgive us, Lord. It is for these sins that Christ died. And now we ask that by the power of your spirit, you might convict us, work in us, help us to to walk in the right way. And I pray, Lord, that any and all marriages at Heritage might be good imitators of Priscilla and Aquila. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.